It's always a privilege, a high privilege, one that no one, nobody is equal to, to nobody but Christ, the Word Himself, to preach. But man, this morning, the Great Commission. Wow. Well, it's such a privilege to be here with you again. I'm Taylor, and I'm a pastor here. This morning, is, we're finishing Matthew, as you, in case you didn't, couldn't figure that out. You know, we, even if it's your first Sunday, you probably figured that one. Uh, we're at the very end, and I just love, I love Matthew's clothes. I love the different clothes of each of the four Gospels, but I love, I love Matthew's, and it's been a pleasure to dive into this week. We've been, really since January, the first part of this year, walking through, sorry, longer since, um, since the beginning of that, we've been in Matthew. We've kind of taken as a, a family of churches, whom we are, Sojourn Heights, Montrose, Gallery, and most recently Spring Branch. I've taken to preaching in, during Advent and then during Epiphany um, through a, a different gospel. Last year was John, this year is Matthew. And we took a break for Lent. I don't know if you called it a break. We took a, we took a break from Matthew and preached through Lamentations. Very hard. Part of Holy Ranch, part of God's Word, just as much as the red letters, every bit of perfect and, 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 and pure and edifying and necessary for, for to know God and for our salvation, but tough. And a lot of us have been suffering in various ways, and so it's been, it's been hard in that sense, but, but good. Kind of like a spanking, you know, like as a kid. It's, your parent spanks you but loves you. It's hard. You don't really enjoy it, but it's good for you. Uh, and so we're back in Matthew and have been for a few weeks, and we're finishing up before we move into a revival series, which I'm really excited about. We'll talk more about that at the coming member meeting. But man, this, this great commission that Jesus gives is the last thing that he tells his disciples in, in Matthew. I really just feel like it touches on, I mean, all of us ask, we ask the big questions in life, and if we're not asking the big questions, we, we ought to be. Why? Who am I? The old, the old Zoolander spirit, right? Who am I? Uh, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? Where do I come from? Where am I going? And in these five seemingly, maybe, okay, not, they're not seemingly unassuming. They're pretty powerful, ostensibly, but I feel like Jesus gives us the cogent, the only cogent and soul-satisfying answers to all these questions. So I want to dive into that quite simply this morning together. Um, the Great Commission is uh, by Jesus is I want to I want to put this in front of you a recommissioning. Okay, so it's a sort of a, a, a great recommission that leads to three points. Surprise, surprise! You'll have them up on the screen. A new creation. So this Great Recommissioning leads to a new creation, a new humanity, and a new age. Okay, so let's let's jump into a new creation first. A new creation. A lot of us read this in the Gospels, for that matter, in isolation, I think. But actually, Matthew is the first Gospel, but he comes uh, after the entire Hebrew Bible, to which Jesus refers as the Scriptures. And, and the, uh, those who wrote the New Testament always refer to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, as the Scriptures, the Old Testament. So, this is written in a context that, that we, ought to, we ought to understand that context and read, and read Matthew and the Great Commission in light of that. And really, the context that's apt here, I think, is, is the beginning of the, the first creation. Because this really presents itself as a new creation. And we talked about that some last week, because Christ's death wasn't just 
him dying for himself. He didn't die for himself. He died for us. He buried the old humanity in rebellion against God. As Chris was praying his prayer. And when he rose, he didn't rise for himself. He rose as a representative, as a man, as God, fully God and fully man, as the representative of a new creation and a new humanity. And so that this is just really fleshing more of that out. And when we go back to Genesis, we see God, the Bible starts, Genesis 1. God makes everything, and then he makes man and women, women in his image on the final day of creation, the day they sit before he rests. And what does he do after he makes man and woman the highest of his creation in his image? What does he do? Before, before the very end of chapter 1, he commissions them. He blesses them and he gives them a commission. He says, uh, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over it. And so what we see here is that Jesus, as the second Adam, risen from the dead, having left the old rebellious humanity in the grave, having paid for that, having in a sense become that, and buried it, and he left it in the grave, and he rose victorious as a second Adam, as a new type of human, as a type of human that wants to obey God, that can obey God, that loves the Father, that is in perfect relationship with the Father and can love other people. And he he rises with new, this new creation in his train, and the first thing he does, really, after showing himself to a variety of people, is he meets the disciples on this mountain in Galilee, and he commissions them. So it's really a recommissioning. And in light of that recommissioning, he's not... If we read it in light of, as we should, Genesis 1, we see that it's essentially the same in that he's commissioning this new humanity, his followers, made new in his death, in his life, death, and resurrection. He's uh, commissioning them to essentially be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. I think it's easy to miss that sometimes. But rather than having, and mul rather than multiplying in the sense that we think of Genesis 1, having babies, and as we have babies, we we fill the earth with the image of God, what God said for Adam and Eve to do with their, their progeny. Jesus says, go and make disciples. So he's saying, go and, and fill the earth with my image as it was originally intended. But rather than having babies, he's saying, see people die in their sins and be raised to a new kind, be birthed into a new humanity by making them disciples of me and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. So, really, as we go out as disciples of Christ, new in Christ, through what he's done, not what we've done, believing on him, we have a part to play in seeing the earth populated with God's image. And that is, that, that is how the church takes part in the dominion of in, in a world takeover. In filling the earth with God's image and seeing it subdued and cultivating for his glory and then he will return so that's that's it that's that's the new creation um seeing the conquest of christ and his kingdom go out through the preaching of the gospel as people die to their agenda look to christ and say that's what i deserve what you took on the cross you died for me i believe and then receiving his holy spirit as they trust in him and being made new and then learning to grow in him through wanting to follow him and, and learning his teaching. Um, so the point here, among other things, is that redemption, redemption and new life, being purchased by the blood of Jesus for a new type of life, this redemption leads to 
It's not an end in itself. It's a means where it leads to a new creation. It leads to a new creation. Um, the resurrection of God and this charge, this commission to fill the earth with his, with his image follows the cross. We have to remember that. Um, so the gospel is not just about our personal, personal salvation, but about the restoration and indeed the recreation of all things. That's what I want to get across in this first point here. We know this because of the way the Bible ends, excuse me, begins in Genesis 1 and 2 with creation. That's how the book of all books starts, is with creation. And in ancient books, utmost, um, more, more than perhaps books today, position tended to be really important. So the way a book begins, middle even, and then it's end, tells you about what the book's about. So it begins with creation, and how does the Bible end? Revelation 21 and 22. Last two chapters. It ends with a recreating of Recreation. God makes all things new. Um, and he brings heaven down to earth. And he, and he finishes the process that he tells us that he started to carry on until he comes again. So this is what the Bible is about. It's about not just salvation, but salvation is part and parcel of a greater recreating project. Everything matters. Everything in life matters because of what Christ has done. It's done in his name. Nothing is vain anymore. Everything we put our hand to. Um, everything becomes worship. So William Dumbrell, in a book called The End of the Beginning, he wrote, he writes, rooted in Old, Old Testament expectations, the gospel is not to be limited to personal renewal or subjective individual redemption. It must be construed in the widest possible terms as conveying God's intention to bring about a new world order in Jesus. This gospel assumes a cosmic dimension, including not only the present redemption of the creature, but also the prospective redemption of the creation itself. Think of Romans 8, where Paul says, All creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption of the sons of men, because all creation will be renewed, but only as we are renewed. We lead that train, because we are God's image and He died for us. But He died in order to restore all things. Right? So it's not this evacuationist theology or picture in the Bible at all of we get our soul saved and go to heaven. It's rather he came to restore everything that he created and said it's good. God will never abandon his creation. That's what the crucifixion, that's what the incarnation is becoming one of us. Not a creature, but a human. Um, and the cross and the resurrection mean. To say, therefore, that the gospel is Christ crucified or Christ dying for sins is correct, but we need to put the further question, with what in view? What does Colossians 1, 18-20 say? He, Christ, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile, catch this, to himself, all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To return to Dumbrell, Christ crucified, he says, is the architect of the new creation, the new Adam. We see Jesus reigning as a pledge of a renewed world. So the fact that Christ rose from the dead, buried sin and death, and all, the, all, all of our rebellion, in which we hated God, and all of that, that like ink and water spread throughout all creation. He, um, his resurrection from the dead is a pledge to us and to all creation that he's going to make all things new. Does 
That's the first thing I think that the, uh, the Great Commission shows us. Our end is, again, it's not an evacuation to heaven, but it's a new heaven. How does the Bible finish? Not with an evacuation to heaven, but with a new heavens and a new earth. Heaven coming down with the King Jesus in his person. We will see him face to face. He still has, he's a person. He has a body. He always will. He will always have the nail marks in his hands to remind us forever. The King that reigns, he didn't choose to reign without us. He, choose, he chose to bring us into his reign and into his glory by enduring sin and hell for us. And Levi was coming to the um, and again, talking talked last week about how um, because salvation means renewal and the restoration of all areas of life, um, that's one of the reasons that it's so important that Christ rose on the first day of the week. He started something new instead of the last day of the week. After we retired from our toil, which was the old Shabbat. The old Jewish Shabbat was the end of a long work week, but, but Christ's resurrection on the first day of the week, as if to say, everything changes from this point forward. In, in, even in your work, rest. This anxious toil in Christ, there's peace. He came to bring peace to all things, to destroy the enmity that's between us and God, that's between creation and God, and we are to be emissaries of that shalom, that wholeness, that peace um, to all creation. In every store we enter, in the way that we work, in our workplaces, in our homes, as we play, as we rest, everywhere. Everything is worship. Everything's, everywhere we go, we bring renewal. And that's what the Great Commission in line of Genesis means. It's so much bigger than just going and articulating the gospel, seeing people say you're going to heaven. It is that. It is that. Don't get me wrong. It is that. That is, that is the means to renewal of all things. God cares about everything. Um, okay. So that is actually I just bypassed an opportunity to finish that point of the Lord of the Rings. I'm, I'm growing. I'm gonna skip over that. We had, we had that last week. I'm gonna probably get it next week. If you're not going to Rings Range, you probably sleep right now, I'm just saying. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I love you too, and you can stay. All right, so that's the new creation as we talk about this, this recommissioning that Jesus gives at the end of Matthew. That's a new creation. But point two, also a new humanity. Um, what Christ has done in his commissioning here means a new humanity. What does Jesus say? He says, make, go and make disciples. What does he not say? He does not say, go and evangelize. And again, don't hear, me, don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying don't go and preach the gospel. Do go and preach the gospel. But he doesn't say, go and evangelize. He says, go and make disciples. Okay? People who follow me. Normal Christianity is to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. To lay down your life and your desires and to take up his. To take up our cross. To follow him. He is king. He is Lord. You have all of me, God. This is not exceptional Christianity. This is the blueprint, Jesus says, for our mission as new creatures in Christ going forward, as a new humanity. Um, Dallas Willard, former professor of philosophy at USC, now, now with the Lord, he said this. He said, Jesus told us in a, in a book called The Great Omission, he's, he's, he's riffing on the Great Commission, but, but he talks about how we, we missed the biggest piece. Jesus told us explicitly what to do. We have a manual, just like the car owner. He told us, his disciples, to make disciples, not converts to Christianity. Bill Hull comments on this saying, truly radical. 
Willard is proposing that we demote from its first rank, getting people into the fold. I think often that's as far as we go. But Jesus says, go and make disciples. That's not, that's not an elite status, and then there's everybody else. That's just what Jesus called us to. And then, I mean, there's, in, the, in Hebrews, um, I believe it's Hebrews 12, perhaps, 1 and 2. Maybe it's, I think it's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Some of you will know. But talking about uh, our spiritual act of worship is to be a living sacrifice to God. And that really the Greek, I think, is better translated, um, it's our ration. To be a living sacrifice, to be someone that realizes, I have no rights. Jesus has purchased me. God Almighty, if it's true that he came down and became one of us and became sin in my place to restore me to God through no good of my own, through his complete compassion, undeserved for me. And he's made everything right for me with God. Isn't, isn't the only rational, here's the, here's the translation, the only rational response to that. If that's true, if it's not true, then eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We do what you want. But if that's true, does it make any sense to sort of live a little, to give a little bit to God? It makes no sense at all. He gave all of himself for us, for all of us. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for me. He's jealous for our people that are holy his. And so, um, it's our it's our only rational response to that kind of sacrifice is to follow him fully um, as a body together. So normal Christianity is full devotion to Jesus, following him, loving him, knowing him at all times and at all costs. Faithful Israel, the remnant of Israel, um, the one persecuted by their enemies, was experienced this. The historic church. You read about church history. This is the history of the church. Is the persecution of the church, oftentimes unto death. I mean, the church has really never been popular, and it's only in exceptional pockets and places in history, really in the West, in the past few hundred years, where we haven't been persecuted for our faith. Um, the global church currently, same same boat, persecuted unto death, but saying, "I'm all yours, Lord, because you gave all of yourself to me. You purchased me, body and blood and soul." That's normal Christianity. We are not normal. We're rich. There's nothing wrong with wealth, but it tends to it tends it tends to dim our passion for Christ. To have us parcel out a little bit to Him and try to keep the rest for ourselves. Okay, that's foolishness. We're rich, we're safe, and consequently we're indolent, we're powerless. We are the exception in America, not the rule. Okay, if you look at all from Israel all the way to the present day, we we I mean Christ said, "Make disciples who follow Me, not make converts." Okay, so if you look at the book of Acts. The only book we have on what was there early. So we have the Gospels, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And then we have one book on the early church, Acts. And then the rest of them is the epistles. The rest of the New Testament is the letters to the church is saying, in light of what Christ has done and who he is now, how do we live? That's the New Testament. Well, Acts is the only book we have, again, on what was happening. What did Christ body on earth as he was, as he was reigning from heaven? having sent them his Holy Spirit to continue to do his work. What did that look like? And it's just full of the fearless proclamation of the gospel, incurring much loss, much, much loss, but the church growing and growing and growing as it was persecuted. That's normal Christianity. Um, If you look at the book of Revelation, it's the same thing. The book of Revelation was written to Christians in order to say, hang on, we know that you're suffering terribly for Christ, but that's not evidence that Christ has lost or is weak or disappeared. He's in you. 
he's with you. The fact that you're being persecuted means that Satan hates what is going on, and actually it's through that persecution that, that, that his body will grow, and that the Great Commission will be fulfilled. That's why Revelation was written to encourage the church. Actually, you're more than conquerors, because Christ is reigning, and he has all authority now. So, what you're experiencing is actually his kingdom going forth in power. You look at Fox's Book of Martyrs, really all the way from the early church up till through the 16th century, standard Christianity, how people suffered for their faith. Um, Tom Dosh recently gave us a bunch of books by Tom Doyle, who's over in the Middle East working in the Syrian church and elsewhere in the Middle East. Um, but Standing in the Fire, the book before that, Killing Christians, there's a chapter called The Only Empty Graveyard in Syria, where a bunch of Christian Syrians, most of them were former Muslims that they bought a graveyard for themselves. They're like, yeah, we're, we're body back to Christ. Like, we're just, we're going there. I'm sure we're going to get killed, but until we do, we're going to, we're just going to be all out for Jesus. And that's normal Christianity. I have some quotes here from Standing in the Fire. I won't read them, but along those lines, what are brothers and sisters, how they're living over there? I look at that and I say, man, I could never. But actually, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, not exceptionalists. Should be the rule, and it has been for most of church history. Okay, so if you're not thoroughly impressed by now, I'm not sure how else I can impress you. Okay, this is huge. It's like, what? My life, there's so much dissonance between what I've been preaching in my life, between what I've been preaching in our typical lives, right? You're thinking, man, I can never do this. I'm incapable. I'm scared. I'm a weak American Christian. Okay, all that's true about me. <laughs> all that's true about me. It's true about a lot of you. Um, I'm not a Syrian Christian with strong faith. They think true. This may be true, but what this word tells us here is that that doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make the difference. Jesus does not start with go and make disciples. He doesn't start that with that. He starts with what? He starts with behold. Okay? Behold. All authority, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Preach it. Okay, he, that is the necessary pretext to, or context for, I should say, go and make disciples. Because it's the therefore. I have been given by God the Father all authority in heaven and on earth, everywhere. There's not a bit of power or authority that I don't own now. Therefore, on that platform alone, you can go, and you will go, and you can go. And make disciples of all nations. In in Daniel seven, this is giving us a picture of the fulfillment of a key text in the Old Testament. You might be thinking of it. It's Daniel seven. I want to read it to you. Verses thirteen and fourteen. Just two verses. Daniel seven. This was written about six hundred years before Jesus came, but it's, you'll see it's a, he directly fulfills it. Daniel had a dream or a night vision. He said, "I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man." And he came to the Ancient of Days. This, by the way, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man. He always referred to himself in the third person. Who does that? Jesus. The Son of Man. He's identifying with, he's saying, I fill the Old Testament. And this is a key text that he's talking about here. He says, so the Son of Man must go to the cross. He's really saying, I am this person Daniel's talking about. Okay? There came one like a Son of Man, with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, and it was presented before him. And to him, so this is a man, but he can approach God. Okay, so he's obviously extremely powerful. 
has extreme authority. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all, guys, all peoples, nations, not some, and languages should serve him. His dominion is what? An everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. There's only one power structure that is guaranteed to last and it will last for all day. It's like a stone, this stone that nobody notices you like trip over it. Oh, that's an ugly rock right there. That's what Jesus was. People looked past him. He was not attractive to look at. He was nothing much. He was like a root, like a root sticking out of the ground that you might trip on, like a blade, tiny blade of grass, says Isaiah in Isaiah 53. But he grew through his self-sacrifice and resurrection from the dead. It says this stone will, will become a mountain and will fill the whole earth. What Daniel goes on to say. There's only one kingdom, not America, not I was gonna say Canada, but everyone knows Canada's not gonna have to make them up. Some of us, some of us Americans might in our hubris might think that uh, we will not gonna happen. You know, there's no kingdom. Kingdoms kingdoms come because Persia still exists, one of the most ancient empires um, in in the country of Iran. You think of Greece, you think of Rome, they've all waxed and waned. America will too. We've had our day. You know, we, we continue with allegiance to Christ first, not America. We want to be good citizens, but America's not going to last. That doesn't mean we shouldn't vote. We should. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to get off on that, okay? But our, our allegiance is to Christ as the head of a kingdom, as the king of a kingdom that will fill the earth and he will reign and he will return. And they call him too. So, um, He's the, he's the head of the kingdom. A, a kingdom will be given him that shall not be destroyed. Jesus fulfills this. And in this great commission, he's really, that he's making, he's commissioning us sort of in the con, this rich context of the fulfillment of the scripture. Okay? Uh, this is how his kingdom will go forth. All through what he's done and who he is. Psalm 110 is the most quoted, certainly Psalm in the New Testament. I think it's the most quoted scripture in the New Testament. Don't quote me on that one. The first verse is in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, this is David writing. The Lord said to my Lord, the God the Father said to someone who was David's Lord, which is Jesus. He's prophesying a thousand years in the future. Sit here while I make of your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, that's an ancient Eastern way of saying, you will have all authority and power, and anyone who opposes you, you're just going to have like your foot on their neck. You, your, your, your enemies will be like an ottoman. To your feet. You're just reading the paper, the Sunday paper, and everyone who opposes you is just under your feet and gets crushed. Even if it looks like your church is failing, even if it looks like your body on earth is making no headway, it's not the case. What the scriptures say is true. Jesus says, I, I have that authority. I am that Lord, David's Lord. And my enemies, because of what I've done, because I have buried the old humanity and, and, and been raised to a new type of life. Um, I have all authority. Therefore, go and make disciples. So one question you might have is, hasn't Jesus always had all authority? Um, well, as God, yes. He was, before he became a human, before he became Jesus of Nazareth, before he was born a baby, he was the eternal, only son of the Father. At the Father's right hand, he's always had all power and authority. Okay? But as a man, No. Because Jesus at a point in time, in the fullness of time, became a man. He became a man. And as a man, he represents all men and women and children. 
who will trust in him, who look to him. Okay? So Adam was given, this is in a dynamic context. Again, think of Genesis 1. Adam was given dominion over, Adam and Eve were given dominion as God demonstrated over all creation, but they lost it when they rebelled against God. And what Jesus is saying is, as a man, I am the Son of God, the only Son of God. I am fully God, the second person of the Trinity, the triune God. But I'm also a man. And as such, I represent anyone who will look to me. And I'm the second Adam. And I have regained what Adam lost. I now have not only power over all things, but what? Authority. In other words, I have paid the price that mankind owed to God and forfeited dominion. And I've buried it in the ground. And I now have risen as a stamp of the Father's approval that your payment was sufficient. I've now risen to a life of total power and authority, and I'm sending you out. I'm not keeping it for myself. You're my body. Anyone who trusts in me becomes one with me in the Father, and is now because of my authority, you may go. What is that? Um, this is the message of the New Testament letters. Everything that follows um, the Gospels and Acts is that Christ reigns. Christus victors. In him, no matter our situation, no matter how much we're suffering or how, what we're feeling at the time, in Christ, if we're in Christ, we reign. This is the message of Revelation. Again. So if, if you read Revelation, for instance, the last book of the Bible, and, or, and you're scared out of your mind, like it's, it's a tough book, but if, you're, if, if your primary feeling when you read Revelation is fear, you're not reading Revelation right. Revelation is one of those Christ-saturated books of the Bible, and it was written again to assure God's people Christ is reigning. And in him you are too. He has all power and authority. So no matter what happens to you, if you are living in him and looking to him, you win. He will use, because of what he's done through the economy of the cross, he'll use even and especially suffering and pain to further his kingdom. And he will return. And, and you, can, you can't lose now because you will be with him when your life is taken from you. And he has paid the price that you have done by going to hell for you. So that you have nothing to fear. Um, What, how does Revelation start? Revelation 1, 3. Not, okay, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. Not scared and confused are all those who read and hear. Blessed. Again, this is to the persecuted church. Christ is reigning. He has won. And in that we do too. Keep preaching the gospel and be faithful unto death. Okay, so why do we go? Why do we make disciples? Not because we're great. Not because of anything in us, but because he is and because he's overcome. We go because he has all authority. Um, God's sovereignty, his complete power and control over all things, is the only foundation for our preaching the gospel in a variety of ways to people that we can. It's the only, it's the only possibility. How else, let me ask you this question, how else can we expect people that are dead in their sins and trespasses, Ephesians 2.1, the Bible tells us people, they're dead as doornails when it comes to hearing God's voice and, and pursuing Him. Left to themselves, they'll never do it. How else, unless God is sovereign over their hearts and minds and eternal destiny, their wills, can we preach the gospel and see dead people rise to new life? How else, unless God is sovereign? And Jesus is telling us here, I am that God. And I am the God-man. And I have done what Adam forbidden. And everything is new. I've started a new creation. I've begun a new humanity. Okay. Um, unless we think, I want you to, before we move to point three, 
Lest we think we make disciples. Jesus follows this but with what? He follows go and make disciples with baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look, if you have an ESV Bible, which we have some back there, and that's what we tend to read, but it'll give you a little footnote by the end, baptizing them in the name. It's literally the word ice in the Greek, which is typically translated into. It's just weird. It reads a little bit weirder if you read baptizing them into. Okay, but it literally says baptizing them into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. A disciple isn't somebody we make. It's not somebody that like, does certain things outwardly. Jesus is saying a disciple is someone first and foremost who is, who is baptized into into relationship with, given a new status, into relationship with God, the Father, who is one, three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? Um, when we trust in Christ, he gives us a new status. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness and makes God our Father. In every way that he has all the rights uh, to the kingship as the only Son of God, he gives those to anyone who will believe on him. That's what he's saying. That's what a disciple first and foremost is, a qualitatively new person. It's not about going to church once a week. You typically go to church, go to church. But if you did go to church, it's not about doing this and doing that. It's not about um, making sure that you obey this and that. Disciples will obey. Disciples will want to please God. But it's because you're made, we're baptized into a new name. Our, our old allegiance, our old family, Satan, we didn't, none of us before we were Christians probably thought of Satan my father. Jesus says, it's either Satan is your father and you, you think you're the boss and you, don't, you really don't want anything to do with God, but actually you're controlled by your sin and by this evil demonic power called Satan. Or you were delivered from death, brought out of death into life, and you are, and you are given the name of God. And you're brought into that family, which is one reason that in the Reformed faith, we say, um, you can't, there's a, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Like, when you are made God's child, salvation isn't like something you're given, like a piece of bread, like you take bread away. Salvation is a status. You cannot, when you are made a son or a daughter of God, he will never unson you or undaughter you. What kind of father would adopt a child and then when they misbehave or didn't meet certain standards, just kick you to the curb and say, sorry, you're not you're, you're no longer part of the family. I'll tell you what kind of father, a bad father. A really bad father. But God is a good father. And we have even explicit parable like the parable of the prodigal son that tell us that he runs to meet us and welcomes us back with open arms when we have done everything we can to deny him. We will never be unsigned or undaughtered. That is our status. And that is our status. But then he also says this, uh, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to obey all. Again, this is normal discipleship. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And what did Jesus command? Chiefly, he said this, what? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. What? As I have loved you. How is that possible? And all the, he says, all the law and the prophets, all the commands in the Old Testament hang on loving God and loving each other. Like Chris says, because we've been reconciled to God and made his children through no good of our own, we can be reconciled to each other. We can forgive. We can love each other from a true heart. 
even when people wrong us, because of what's been done for us. We have peace here with God through the work of Christ, and so we can forgive, and we have been made a body. And we can reach out to even our enemies who spit our faces, really or perverted, and say, what Christ has done for me, I extend to you. Um, this is only possible with somebody, not just outwardly, but from the heart, with somebody who's been given the heart of Christ. Again, it speaks to the fact that Christ's disciples are not something that they make themselves. It's something that Christ makes as you believe on Him. Believe on Christ and you'll be saved. It's that simple, it's that profound. But with regard to teaching, um, we want to take that seriously and more seriously now that we're progressing some as a church. With you know, we just hired Paul. We'll talk about that coming to members meeting. But Paul Ramsey on and doing some other things, and we're far enough along. We want to start basically equipping classes in January. That's our, that's our goal, so we're going to be working toward that. So that the 9 o'clock hour is coming, and whether teaching is in six-week modules or just continuously having like a three- to five-year track where we give we give you, we're teaching you. We're teaching you all that. We're teaching you how to understand the Scriptures, handle the Scriptures, teach them to others, love God through them, know how to study them, know how to read them. Um, classes on you know everything from evangelism to prayer, um, so we want to start equipping classes. That's, that's part of it. Um, we're going to start a five-week evangelism training. Um, in our, we're going to run it through our parishes. It's going to be walking through the book of John. We're going to start that in conjunction with the, uh, the revival series that, that starts in two weeks. Um, and, and after that, we want to roll out. Here's a biggie. So just, I know it's a lot of change at once, but I just want to throw it out there. After that's finished, after the revival series is over, we've walked through sort of how do we better reach out to our neighbors and to our work colleagues and so on and so forth. We want to, we're going to pilot this. We're going to pilot this, but we want to start um, once a month figuring out as parishes, how do we reach out more effectively to our neighbors? So once a month, probably be like the fourth, the fourth week of every month. So the first week we have prayer together, and then the fourth week, and sometimes it's the fifth week in the month, but the fourth week, just coming together for a meal, that's it. But inviting, each of us inviting one to three neighbors. And so we're really focusing on like just inviting our neighbors in, saying a prayer, saying we are the body of God, we're here for you, we're here to bless you, and just come and let's just have a meal together. So getting that into our rhythm on a regular basis so that we can begin to remind ourselves that we are a community made by God, but also our community that's on mission to bring people into the, the bounty that Christ has provided for us and, and to bring people into the family that God has brought us into. So that's, those are just a couple things. Um, lastly, before I briefly, ever so briefly, um, touch on the third point, I just want to say, sort of to gather together this distinction between baptizing disciples into the name of God and teaching them to observe all. Just to pound this point home, I want to take you to uh, a pool, a pool, a swimming pool, okay? I, I've got too much experience now playing pools. We, we, I want to say stupidly, we love our house. It's such a blessing. I mean, how do we have a house? You know, I'm a church player. It's such, y'all have blessed us uh, through the salary you give. We have a house here in the Galleria, and we have a pool. I'm a pastor with a pool. Gosh, I'm, I'm never going to buy a jet, all right? I have a pool. Keeping it clean is so difficult. My goodness. Uh, it's a lot of work. Here's the thing. Sometimes it gets green, and I'm getting better. But if you don't like tend to it like a little baby, man, every day eating it just a little bit, putting the chlorine tablets and doing all that stuff, man, it will go berserk on you. And uh, 
And so when it gets, starts to get that green tinge, um, I will sometimes, you know, clean, you change out the Polaris. What are those things called? The squirty, my kids call it a squirty. They make the travel all around the pool. You know. The what? Charlie, okay, that doesn't help. Yeah, the, the little pool thing that uh, you clean out the bag, you make sure the hose is clean, you put the chlorine tablets in the little floating basket, make sure that the leaves are all out. You're doing all that stuff, and then you even shock the pool, you put the shock in. You, let, let me tell you something. You can do, a lot of frustration. You can do all that, you can do, and I have, you can do all that and spend hundreds of dollars on chemicals and just blast the heck out of that pool and do everything you need to to clean it ostensibly on the surface, but it will stay green. It may get like a little bluer, but it, it will basically stay green and just destroy you. Unless you do this, and I finally figured this one out. School of hard knocks. Tell you what, first world problems having a pool. You you have to clean the main filter pump thing, the big black beast that's in the back that growls behind the little fence that nobody sees. You have to like shut everything down, take the top off, get the hose out, spray, take spray off the algae. It's a huge process, but man, that's the motor, that's the engine, that's the heart of the pool. Once you clean that. It's clean, and then you put this other chemical in it once it's nice and clean, and it starts running. Everything else is cake. Everything else is necessary, but but that is the thing that makes the difference. And that's that's what Jesus is saying here. He didn't know he was talking about pools, but he was. What he's saying here with baptizing, it's what he's saying here with baptizing and teaching. You can teach, I can teach you guys everything. If you give me the next 10 years, teach you everything I know. And, it, and, you know, Genesis to Rev, all this stuff has been dumped into me, teaching to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. And there's a lot I don't know, but there's a lot I know. And it would make maybe a teeny difference, but really, in the big scheme of things, not at all, if you had not been baptized into the name. If you had not believed on Christ and had him transform your heart and have him send you his Holy Spirit and give you a new breath and a new spirit and a new life and left your old man in the grave where Christ left it. If that hasn't happened, that transaction, if the central filter thing has not been cleaned and changed, and that's something only God can do as you trust in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how much you're taught, it doesn't matter what you do, you'll always stay green. It, 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 won't, it will not make a difference. But it does if you've been qualitatively changed through faith in Christ. And it's necessary. Necessary, it's good. Okay, and we see that in the disciples. We see that um, even here, as they worship Christ, some of them doubt. That's amazing addition by Matthew, verse seventeen. And then in, in the beginning of Acts, which is just a continuation, beginning of Acts, Acts one six. Right before Jesus ascends to heaven. It's their last chance to get in something good. Peter, you have one more shot, you know? Like, you're still one of his disciples. Don't blow up this time. They all in unison say, is it now, Jesus, now that you're victorious, that you're going to crush the Romans, essentially? Is it now that you're going to return the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus probably just, like, shakes his head. It doesn't say that. but and he, and he says, the Holy Spirit will guide you. And then he ascends to the Father, to power, to the hand of power. And then he sends them the Spirit, which is how they know that he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And when he sends his Spirit in Acts chapter 2, everything changes. Everything changes. Um, and that's what the last point is going to be like two minutes. I just want to 
briefly touch on is that without the Holy Spirit, we have no power and we have no understanding. But Peter, the difference between Peter then and Peter a few days later, when he received the Holy Spirit, if you go read in Acts 2, his preaching, starting in verse 17, it's night and day. It is night and day. We have to have the Holy Spirit to, to be empowered to do the work of God. And the Holy Spirit is nothing less and nothing more than the Spirit of Christ with us. You know, Christ said, if I leave you, I'm going to have to leave you. And all the disciples got sad. This is before his cross. He said, I'm going to have to go. And they got all sad, as they should have. But he said, whoa, whoa. It's better, actually, that I leave you. It's better that I go. Because when I go, what? I will send you my spirit. I'll send you my breath. I'll send you my Holy Spirit. And and when the, the disciples, here's why it was better. They had Jesus in. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus was sitting right there, um, shaking his head, going, you preach way too long, man. Um, but he was sitting right there. Jesus is literally saying, it's better what I've given you right now, Church of God, Sojourn Galleria, my precious body, is better than if I was sitting right there in person, in bodily. Because we would have him next to us, and the disciples had Jesus next to them. But we, as we trust in Christ, he deposits his whole self into us. He gives us his very breath, his very life, his very spirit. And we can commune with him on an intimate way, in an intimate way that the disciples never, ever could. And so that's the third point, a new age. A new age. Um, and that's really what we're going to get into big time in this revival series. But without Holy Spirit revival, without the Holy Spirit coming and leading us and guiding us, what the Holy Spirit does is he connects us to God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. He brings us up into the heavens and he brings heaven down. Um, this is the new age. That's the short, the short version of what I wanted to convey to you in this last point, the new age. Jesus says, look, I am with you. Last verse of the Great Commission. Last verse of Matthew. I am with you always. He didn't say, I'm leading you, and it will sort of like be a B plan. He said, I am with you always. And that, what he meant there is, I will give you myself, my very self, my spirit, to the end of the age, to the final days. And what I want to say here is there's a big misconception of these parts that it's the final days, the last time, the last days, the end time, the final eschaton, to use a Greek word, is in the future. Can I tell you that is absolutely false? Jesus says here, the final days, the, the point, the last phase of world history until I come again and make all things new is right now. I just started. It's called the church age. It's called the age of the Holy Spirit. And we have a part to play in seeing the nations reach for Jesus Christ. And when that happens, he will return. He's reigning now in power. He's given it himself by his very Holy Spirit. And if you read the book of, again, I'm going back to Revelation, part of Revelation, if you read the book of Revelation as mainly in the future, you're reading the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is written to the church in you know, 70, 80, 90 AD, the early church, and to us, the church of God, his body saying, be encouraged. You are more than conquerors because Christ has conquered death. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. 